0: You are listening to the Kairos Des Moines Podcast. Okay, so you guys remember uh, back in the day, uh, I mean, challenges are still a thing, but I feel like a while, like a few years ago, there was like a, a this and this challenge that people kept doing. On the internet like the cinnamon challenge you know what i'm talking about where you have to eat a tablespoon of cinnamon or something it's like physically impossible and like people damage their sinuses trying to do this crazy thing uh there was the ice bucket challenge was probably when you guys were in like middle school or high school or something and that was like a thing for a while um then there are really stupid challenges like the whole like eating detergent thing like the tide pod challenge listen kudos to you if you're here and we're also doing that because that means you didn't damaged brain or get poisoned, but um, so there was this thing when I was in like middle school uh, or or like high school. It's called the Buckle Challenge. Are you aware of this? So there was and is hello. Uh, there was and is something ca- uh, a store called the Buckle, and um, the the Buckle Challenge was this. Um, basically, they had acknowledged this strange social dance uh, between customers trying to look at clothes and, like, go into a store without being noticed. And it was this dance between, like, can you do that and not have to talk to Chad or Becky that, like, work there, right? And so the buckle challenge was this. If you could walk into the front of the buckle and touch the back wall of the buckle without being greeted they would give you a free jones soda which i don't know if you know what jones soda is it kind of died because it was terrible but um it was like these weird flavored sodas but like they would give you something if you could make it from the front to the back touch the wall without being greeted and essentially what this is is they had acknowledged this dance that we all do in any time we get into a store, at least that I know that I do, and um, it hits home close to me because I actively avoid salespeople, uh, hands or knowing nods, if you avoid salespeople at stores, right? Anybody? Oh, I'm the only one. Okay, cool. Jed, you avoid salespeople at stores, right? Like you like don't want to be asked, like, and, and so here's the thing. Despite my friendly demeanor, I never like. Uh, I, I never liked having to. Deal with this, and I worked retail for years, and so despite my overly like friendly disposition, I didn't like having to go bother people that I knew didn't want to get bothered. Like they always gave me this look, like I know what jeans and shirts look like, dude. Like I don't need your help to do this, Uh, and I, I always we both kind of gave each other the look, like I have to ask you if you want to know the sales for the day or if you want to sign up for a credit card. This is just like the thing that we do, and so. The funny thing is the reason that this has been the case in retail for years is that retail owners, in an attempt uh, to like have good customer service or whatever, they've convinced themselves that this is what people want. Hey, if we can just like, be up in people's grill all the time, this is exactly, like, people need to be greeted within uh, an average of three seconds is the expectation in most retail uh, situations. And this is all true except for hardware stores. Uh, Because if you're ever at Home Depot, you can never find anyone. And especially since I grew beard, no one asked me if I need help because I look like I don't need help. But here's the truth, I could not need more help. So um, that is just the truth, but not the buckle. And my desire to not be noticed was simply to like shop in peace and not feel the pressure of a social interaction, some other deep-seated issue that I'll talk about to my therapist about later. But the truth is there are plenty of reasons why people don't want to be noticed. This isn't just in sales situation. Um, There are plenty of reasons why people try to disappear, why people just try to be invisible. Um, There's a popular uh, uh, poll out there, and it's like decades old, and they ask, if you could be invisible, or if you could fly, which one would you choose? Fly anywhere, as fast as you can be. The most popular answer is be invisible. People wanna be able to have the anonymity to just disappear and do not have to deal. There are plenty of reasons why this is the case, and even here in church, in this ministry, or in any other church, I'm here on the weekends, at any point, some people want to come uh, to such a big place, like when we think of hope in general, uh, the critique of hope is, all oh, it's just such a big, mega church, right, is the language that gets thrown out a lot. They want to the ability to be anonymous, and sometimes that's good for certain seasons, but I think the exploration of this particular thing has everything to do with our topic, for our scripture passage tonight. Now we're exiting a season in which Easter has become synonymous with bunnies and with sugar. And though that little green grass that you put in Easter baskets that you find in your couch like nine months later. And with the foundation, we know that the foundation of the church holiday of Easter is all about life, death, and the resurrection. Of Jesus, And it's a story that many of us have heard so many times that what we're talking about doesn't even register sometimes as an emotional response. You're like, yeah, Jesus lived, he died, and he came back from the dead. We can say that with a straight face without sounding like that really happened, that's insane, that that happened insane in the very best way. In fact, the miracle of Easter uh, and the truth that it points to could simply be listed along with other things that have become commonplace here in Easter and in springtime death jelly beans and resurrection you could say it's all just kind of a part of the season you might say well chris we just we just did Easter why are we still talking about it and here's the thing, especially as we exit this time of Wend, uh, which is the time leading up for Easter, and we were really intentional this year by talking about the importance of the entire story. And sometimes we have this mountaintop experience of Easter. You're like, man, Jed, the band, we're killing it, and Pastor Hurst and everybody just like, brought it, and it was really great, and Pastor John said some great things, and uh, the, the scripture reading was really impactful, and Chris didn't mess up the drums on Good Friday, and, like, they get, like, we can just have these really great experiences. Jeremiah absolutely slayed it on Good Friday as well, and it's just one of those things where you're like, man, this was such a great holy week. I felt closer to God, and then... We go back to the stuff we were doing before. All of a sudden, the stuff we gave up for Lent is now a part of our lives again. <laughs> and it's easy to have all of the special stuff, so to speak, kind of that facade, kind of fade away for the mundane, the annoying, and most importantly, the old. And it can maybe feel, if we're not careful, like it was kind of all for nothing. Like, well, I guess that. wasn't real. I guess I was just convincing myself that that was the case. Oh, I guess it was just, that was special then, but here I am back at where I was before. And it can make all of the church stuff seem fake, because we fall back into the same stuff. Because we don't talk about Easter after Easter. So what we're trying to do here, uh, with this series, is talk about not just what it means... To step into Easter on Easter or leading up to Lent. Because we talked about what does it mean to prepare ourselves for Easter. Now exiting the actual holiday, the question is how do we become Easter people? That's the air condition in kids who are Somebody in the podcast is like, and that plane took off. Um, but we want to know how to be Easter people and what exactly Easter means to the rest of our year. And it can leave us asking some uh, pretty big questions coming out of the holiday, right? So if you're feeling this kind of tension, like, man, things things are just kind of back to what they used to be. The big questions that we start to ask are, Overall, big questions like, does all this religious stuff, that tradition, that old story that I heard in storybooks and my grandma told me and I I did the flannel graph on the, you know, we had all of the different things that that we did in Sunday school. I've heard every single year if you grew up in the church. Does all of that still actually, like, does it actually matter? Of course, like, quote unquote, it really matters because it's like important to my family or whatever. But you're like, does it actually matter to my life? Does it actually change anything, or is it all just kind of the fluff of the year? And it's important for us to ask these questions. Because if we don't ask actually ask them, then we don't have a faith that's actually ours. So, spoiler alert, my answer to the question, of course, would be yes, it's important. The bigger question is why? Why does Easter still matter? Why does the story of Jesus resurrecting from the dead still matter? Um So we are going to explore that in this series of death, jelly beans, and resurrection. And we're going to break it up into a few different questions, asking some of these these kind of guiding wonderings, as it it were, of questions like, why did Jesus have to live? Why did Jesus have to die? And why did Jesus have to be resurrected? Why did any of that actually have to happen? Why does the story still matter? So today we're kicking tonight this fine evening, we will kick it off asking that first question, why did Jesus have to live? Why not just fix everything from a, moved, a removed position if, if you're the all powerful God of the universe? Why manifest in the form of Jesus dying in this again? Why go to all the trouble? So the point that I would like to suggest to us is, this evening, I'm showing all of my cards uh, before we jump in here. The point that I would like to suggest to us is this, Jesus had to live to show us what life looks like. Jesus had to live to show us what life looks like. So we're gonna look at one of my very favorite stories in the Bible. I, I feel like I say that a lot, I have a lot of favorite stories, but this one's really good. So feel free, if you're a Bible, if you're a physical Bible person, feel free to pull that out. If you're a phone Bible person, go head and grab that as well and if you're a story time bible person which is me just reading it to you we can do that too but your brain makes more and better connections uh if you see the actual words in front of you and all of the education majors said amen cool. So we're going to start in John chapter 4. I didn't tell you where we were going today. John chapter 4. Go ahead and find it as you find it. Uh, The the Gospel of John is one of the four books named after people's dads, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is, uh, they tell the story of Jesus. John is a little bit funnier than the other three uh, because he refers to himself in the Bible, not by name, but as the one that Jesus loved. So John is also a narcissist. So, uh, just kidding. It's not blasphemy. It's probably true. Um, So, John chapter four. We're gonna start right there. Hopefully, you're caught up with me. So, John chapter four. Now, Jesus learned the Pharisees had his kind of arch nemesis. Uh, The Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back to Galilee. Now, verse four says, he had to go through Samaria. Pause. Our passage today starts with the Pharisees talking about Jesus, which was their favorite thing to do. And then they had heard that he was getting really popular. He was going back to a specific location. There's this big dramatic statement uh, in my Bible. It starts a new paragraph. Uh, and it's just funny because it goes, now he had to go through Samaria. And if this story was being told back in the day to a Jewish audience, there'd be like a, like a big gasp uh, with the crowd. And so here, here's the thing. Samaria was hated by the Jews. It was like a hated area uh, by the, the right people. The, the Pharisees, the religious elite, even the people that Jesus came from, Samaria was seen as the lowest class of people. Here's the thing. Um, culture at that time had a lot to do with ge- geography and also tribalism, which is us versus them, my group versus your group. And we don't <laughs> deal with that at all today. Um, basically, the idea was who you were related to was a really big deal at the time. And in fact part of the identities as to whether or not you're jewish or had uh jewish or not had and still has to do with whether specific ancestors were jewish like it's a part of their religion like ancestors in relation bloodline relations were a really big deal and while we understand the bloodline requirement for the worth of a person is not necessarily great and is kind of outdated wrong one might argue At that age, it had had so much to do with the way that you lived your life, your cultural identity, and how it related to other groups in your area. In fact, Jesus was considered the Messiah because he was related to David. This is very ingrained with the belief at the time. So the uh, the Samaritans were essentially a cultural mix of Israel, meaning the Jewish folks, same as uh, Jesus and his disciples. They were a mix of... Uh, Israel and the conquering group, the Assyrians. So the Israelites get their butt kicked as they tried to conquer land and they got taken over by this group. And because they had intermarried with this group, um, not only had they been conquered by them, meaning they lost the land that God had given them, they had married into their, into their families. And this was seen as a huge betrayal of the Israelite people. And, I mean, let's never mind the fact that, uh, guess what, they probably didn't have much of a choice as conquered people. Right? There's probably some horrifying things that happened there. But it was held against that group. They were treated as second-class citizens as the absolute low of the low. Jumping back into uh, verse 5 here. So, he had to go through Samaria. (laughs) Verse 5. So he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, meaning stuff has happened here before. Jacob's well was there, a very well-known well known uh-huh. well. Uh, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down at the well. So here we have our story. Jesus is at the well which is at the center, culturally and even geographically, of the town. And it's there that he meets a Samaritan woman there by herself. The Bible gives a detail that seems like an afterthought. But remember, when the Bible gives you a detail, it likely informs something about the story. Because the Bible doesn't have like insane amounts of detail, so when it gives you a very specific one, pay attention. That means something happened. The end of verse 6 um, says, It was about... Noon That is the heat, the absolute hottest part of the day in the Middle East. Uh, this is important for a couple of different reasons. The reason that the well would have been at the center, uh, both culturally and geographically, is because remember from our previous uh, series that we 've talked about there's a lot of desert around. If you were in a town. You're in a place where people died, either because they got eaten or there wasn't any water. And so, um, because resources like water helped them sustain were rare, so everyone, everyone from town, the first thing you do when you get up is you go to the well, just like what you do so that your family can survive for the day. You have to go to the well in their towns to get water in the beginning, because if you don't, you have to go in the heat of the day. Water, fun fact, is heavy. Uh, so in order to avoid needing more water, simply from going to get water, everybody goes in the morning. And it became not just this thing that you do like to survive. is when you saw your neighbors. You go out, you say hi to everybody, and uh, you, you kind of get caught up in what's going on for the day. But the Bible said it was at noon, hottest part of the day. So the question that you'd be asking is, why is that lady there now? Why isn't anybody there now? because you'd see your neighbors and your friends, you'd catch up, you'd hear how things are going. The only reason you'd put yourself in that position to have to carry water, heavy water, the hottest part of the day, is to avoid having to see these people. She was trying to disappear. She was trying to not be seen or noticed. We said that there are a lot of reasons to avoid people, to hide behind a mask, to become invisible, Lines, having to get water in the morning, and a lot of things about the time and place are very far removed from Midwest America 2021. But the core of our story here tonight is something that we can all identify with. We have all felt shame at some point in our lives. We have all tried to hide behind a mask. We have all tried to hide parts of who we are or what we've done or what has been done to us for fear of judgment from others. We have all done that, whether that's a family member, whether that's a friend, whether that's a group of people. Even though it's a very different time, different place, and a different culture, we all know what it's like to be at the well at noon. Sometimes this story, the question is like, who do we identify with in the story of the Bible? We're supposed to, my suggestion would be that we identify with this woman. Because we all know what it's like to be at the well. Now this woman at the well, she wasn't just an introvert, she had a past. She was putting herself in harm's way because she had made the type of mistakes and held the type of shame that alienated her from other people. Now, maybe you're here tonight knowing how that feels, to have shame imposed on you by others. Or maybe you know exactly what it's like to have shame imposed on you by yourself. She didn't want to be there with everybody else because she knew that the town gossip they were talking about, that stuff that you know, we're just catching up here and about what's going on, she knew that if she went, it would probably be about her. Gossip apparently transcends the boundary of time, space, and geography, by the way. Uh, plenty of us know what it's like to be talked about, or here's the thing, to feel like someone is talking about you because of the shame that you hold for yourself. You're like, if we go in, everybody will be talking about me. They probably won't, but that's, in, that's a signifier that there's something that you're holding inside you. Sometimes we project our own shame and insecurities on other people. She's trying to avoid all of this. So here we have Jesus speaking with a woman who's a Samaritan, by the way. By the law, he wasn't supposed to be talking to this person. And he was talking to to not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan that, that had been rejected by other Samaritans. This is like the ultimate person that he should not be talking to according to customs at the time. But remember, Jesus had to live to show us what life looks like. Picking up our story in verse 7, we see this interaction that he has. So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? He mentions that Jesus is hes alone here because his disciples want to go get food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's like, Do you know who I am? Like, you're not supposed to be talking to me. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that you ask, that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have uh, nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? And as did his son and livestock, they're trying to be smart at each other. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty thirsty. Indeed, the water I give them will spring up a well of water inside them and give them eternal life. Verse 15 said, the woman woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and having to come back here for water. Don't miss this. You know that she doesn't get what he's saying because she's still in that place of shame. She's still thinking of going back to the well to get water at the hottest part of the day. She can't see past it. She says, oh my gosh, I want what you're talking about, because then I won't have to keep coming back here. She's like, wait, where do I get this water so I don't have to keep coming back here? She's not talking about the inconvenience of having to get water. She's hiding in her shame. Jesus is like, I can give you water that you'd never have to show. She thinks she's saying, that he's saying, I'll give you water that you'd never have to show your face again. She's thinking, if I never have to get water, I never have to face people, I could stay inside all the time. It's not about water. It's all about shame. And Jesus breaks her cycle that pretty quick. Um, in verse 16, he says, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true which is like a weird flex on Jesus' part, but it's it's like the ultimate burn of the Bible. She knows that something's up now because now we know the reason for her shame. That's what this story, the story, you're like, why did Jesus have to do her like that? The the reason is, is because he's just revealed what she has shame about, right? Jesus cut through and spoke directly to the thing that she was hiding from, the very thing that made her want to hide from other people. He just called out the thing, right? Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet because he was able to speak truth where he couldn't have known truth otherwise. She says, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped a mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that we were most worship is in Jerusalem. She's like, hey, uh, basically, can we just change the subject? Maybe we could not talk about how I've been with a bunch of guys and speak out loud the thing that I'm most ashamed about. Maybe we could like skip all of that part. And maybe that sounds familiar maybe you're like hey god i'm not looking to be like confronted with my brokenness like can we just sing my favorite song so i can forget about it for a little bit and then we walk out and all of a sudden things there because we actually didn't address it with god we used god as a distraction and she said to him she's like hey rabbi prophet religious guy she, she goes, see how you know, she tries to change the subject real quick? She's like, so you guys say this is how we should worship. She's like, hey, religious guy, let's talk about religious stuff instead of my stuff. But Jesus is not going to let her run from it anymore. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, time's coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is for the Jews. So yeah, the a time is coming and he has now and has now come when the true worshipers worship the father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is in the spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, everything will be explained to us, which isn't true, but fact. Verse 26, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She asks him a question about religious law and interpretation, and he responds by breaking those distinctions down. He was essentially telling a person who is considered the lowest of the low, because of what she has done and who she was considered to be, that the boundaries of who's out and who's in wasn't true anymore. And that means that she can, she can be included in the kingdom of God. He's like, right, by the old rules, you're out. By the, new, by the old rules, I am in. But he said, a time is coming, and it's actually here right now, where none of that stuff matters anymore. And thinking about somebody, she was somebody who spent her entire life hearing that she wasn't good enough. And this is a person standing in front of her, speaking truth directly into her life circumstances, and none of that none of that distinction matters anymore it meant that the shame that she carried around her the judgment that others had put on her and the judgment that she continued to put on herself didn't matter anymore that the love and grace and inclusion of god meant that she was going to be new he talks about how god isn't in one specific place. That's what the whole mountain thing. They're like, do we have to go to a certain place to interact with God? No. Because we worship God in spirit. The God is spirit in essence, and that by its very nature can't be confined to a location, can't be confined to a people group, and it certainly cannot be confined by our shame. What shame can Jesus break us free from now? It's the question. What happened was Jesus spoke directly into this woman's life, past all the stuff she tried to direct it to, and he said she got to walk away a new person. So the question is, how would living free from shame help you to live differently this week? What would it look like? That thing that you try to avoid, that it doesn't have to be some major thing in your life, or maybe it does. Something that's happened to you or through you we all have brokenness in our life that have led us to seeing ourselves as less than who we really are. It could be something that you've done, just shortcoming that stuck itself into how you perceive yourself. Jesus wants to be able us to be able to live into the fullness of who we truly are, as God says we are. So practically, if there's something that comes up for you, whether it's a memory of past wrongs or mistakes, as I've talked about this, or if it's the title maybe of just not being Blank enough? Whatever you just thought of, that's probably it. (laughs) Good enough, smart enough, rich enough, pretty enough. Think about this. Why does that still hold on to you? We're all big, smart adults now. But why do those labels still matter? Why do that still echo in the back of our head? What about that thing? Are you still believing it's true? And how... Is that holding you back in your day-to-day, in your life, from taking that next great step? Now think, what does Jesus say about me? Instead of not blank enough, God says that you are made with specific blessings to make this world a better place. It's not what you are not, it's what God made you to be. We want to be people who are characterized by the things that God made us to be, not what the world thinks that we're not. Instead of being defined by a past mistake or a traumatic experience, God says that you are defined by what you will do, not what you've done. Instead of not good enough, the God of the universe says that you're good enough to die for. And as we just spent a weekend learning, not even death can keep God down. That's why Easter still matters to us today and why we're still talking about it. And we'll continue to talk about it in this series. And why Jesus had to live. To show us exactly what living a full life looks like. Jesus had to live to show us what life looks like. And that leads us to a number of different questions. But my, my prayer for us this week is that as we all live in shame, guess what? We all do it. We all have things, that, insecurities that we have, mistakes that we wish we hadn't made, all of these various things. Maybe you're like, yeah, Chris, i give you the alphabetized list or the timeline list. Like, We all have things in our life that we're not proud of. And I'm not saying it wasn't bad. I'm not saying that the thing that happened to you wasn't bad. What I am saying is that thing those things, that insecurity it just doesn't get to be who you are at your center because God's death and resurrection means that death and brokenness are defeated, that we get to do more, that you get to leave that thing and go okay God, where are we going next so what's one step that you can take towards that this week what's one way, what's one step that you can take to live into the fullness of not just who the world says you're not but who God really says that you are. And our discussion questions uh, are, are designed to get right at that. Um, the questions are these. So again, at the end of Chiro, split with some groups, have a chat, make sure everybody knows each other. Uh, the question is this. What particular element of Jesus' life, either in this story or in another story that you know about Jesus, what, sticks, what is uh, particularly impactful to you? What element of Jesus' life is particularly impactful? I forgot why, if that's the problem. There it is. Uh, is particularly impactful to you? What sticks out? What element of Jesus is attractive to you? If you're like, I love the way that he's kind to people. I love the way that he encouraged people. I wish I could do that more. Just what sticks out to you? And there's, because there's likely a reason that it does. And then the question is, where's one place this week that you can model that element? If you're like, I love the way that Jesus included everyone. Okay. We want to be more like Jesus. It's the whole point of Easter. What's one way you can take a step that you're not already taking, including everybody this week, in your life, in your actual day-to-day stuff? Because, heaven forbid, you go out and you're like, Chris talked too much. The slides were cool because they had jelly beans on them and he forgot a line particularly. So, that's the question. That's what we're going to go to. We're going to pray real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump off to give it a few minutes in groups. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being a God of things like jelly beans, things like bunnies, things like the stupid grass that gets stuck in our couches. Because God, we know that you are a God of all things. Uh, You love the way that we celebrate different things. You love to be with us in the different ways that we celebrate with family, with friends, and traditions new and old. God, you love all of that. And at the same time, God, you're the God of this story. The story that as long as we have breath, we want to keep telling because it's a story of how you showed us how it's done. You said, no, no, guys, I'm, I'm going to come alongside you. God, as one author put it, Jesus existed in, on our planet Earth so that God could scream alongside us to know how we feel. So God, we thank you for being the God that not, that didn't just do that, but also took the brunt of our worry, of our shame, of our past, and said, guess what? I broke it. None of that matters to you anymore. And I pray for each and every one of these students this week that they would know that in a new way this week, that they would walk with their heads held high with a new blessing in their heart, knowing that the God of the universe loves them. is calling them not just away from something bad, but to something fantastic. It's in your good name, Jesus. Amen.